You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Chris, what's happening, man? Welcome back. Hey, man, how'd that Halloween party go, dude? They dig that drink? Yeah, man, it was killer. Sweet, sweet. Oh, hey, hey, hold on one second. I got to go take care of this couple real quick. You got it. Hey, John, how's it going? Ooh, who's your lady friend? Hey, what's up, Tony? Meet Maria. Maria, this is my good friend and bartender, Tony. It's actually our first date, so I wanted to bring her to my favorite bar. Nice, nice to meet you, Maria. What can I make for you? Nice place you have here. I'll take an Irish car bomb, please. She don't play. I see that. I think I'll hold on to this one. And you know what I want? A boiler maker. Nah, 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 My analytic AI engine uses a predictive algorithm based on your drinking history with an accuracy rate of 97.652%. You know what it's telling me? You want a Shirley Temple. A Shirley Temple? Seriously? <laughs> oh my God. Whatever. Enjoy. All right, Chris. Sorry about that, man. But you know what? I know what you're feeling tonight. You're feeling something cutting edge. I already took the liberty of making you something. We call it the anomaly. Never heard of it. It's got four ounces of peanut butter whiskey. One and a half ounces of cranberry juice. I put that thing on ice. Thanks, bro. I got to go catch up with my man who just walked in. I'll catch you later. All right, man. We'll see you next time. With me at the bar today, direct from Poland, is Szemek Kujewski, an AI entrepreneur with a PhD in mathematics and a member of Forbes 30 Under 30. He completed his PhD in Paris at UPMC and then became a research fellow and a lecturer at the University of Oxford. Currently, he focuses on building Contentize, a content generation platform which he founded and serves as a CEO. Shemek, thanks for stopping by Barcode. Thank you. and for the invitation and it's a pleasure to speak with you, Chris. So I wanna kick things off by getting to know a little bit more about you and your journey into AI, and then talk to us about what led up to the inception of your company, Contentize. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to share my story. So basically my background is uh, really academic. I thought when I was in my twenties that uh, I want to be a professor and I want to spend my whole life doing pure mathematics. And basically that was my life until basically I turned 30, I guess that was the, the breaking point more or less. So. I did my PhD in pure mathematics uh, in Paris. Then I, I, I moved to Oxford as a, to, to be, become a research fellow, still doing mathematics. And around that point, when I was uh, 27, 28, I started thinking I'd like to make a change and I'd like to have more impact on the world. And pure mathematics is not enough to do that. So I switched, but I was a slow, very slow process in the end. I switched from pure mathematics to machine learning, AI, and went from academia to business. So for the past few years, I've been developing and working on different startups or collaborating with different companies, enterprises on various AI-related projects. And basically, since the start of this year, I focus entirely on building content ties into a, uh, into a great company, hopefully. 
So that's the that's the that's the origin story. Contentize itself is a as you said, it's a, it's a content generation platform. We use a bunch of machine learning models to generate content at scale. And the reason for doing that for me was I was always interested in literature. I was always always interested in writing. I had a couple of blogs myself. I've written a couple of novels even before uh, switching to to business. So from my perspective, doing something with content, uh, doing something with writing was the the dream come true. I could team my uh, writing skills with my mathematical and machine learning skills and do something together. So that's the origin story of Contentize itself. Excellent. Are you generating content or are you providing the model for other organizations to generate content? So actually both. You, you can either... So, so there are, most of the users are actually uh, using Contentize because it's like a SaaS platform. You can just sign up at appcontentize.com and you can just provide a headline and based on that headline, you get the whole text or a draft of a text. So you don't even have to write anything yourself apart from the title of the text. And that's the goal in the end. But also like on the other hand, larger companies that I work with, they have templates in mind of the kind of content they want to create. So that might be related to like different financial statements or different FAQs. This is really templated, this is really scripted, but they need to gather the data from different sources and merge that together into something better and uh, much, something which is much easier to digest in the end and make the decision. Got it. Now, with me being in the cybersecurity field, I'm personally curious about where the intersection of AI and cybersecurity meet and where it will ultimately take us. And without a doubt, the AI technology is a game changer for not only generating this type of dynamic content, but it's also changing the landscape for cyber criminals and also organizations that are implementing defensive controls. Have you seen the advancement in the cybersecurity slash AI space? If so, what have you seen and where do you see it going? Yeah, I think like that the most common application right now of AI and from the moment actually AI took off, so like in 2012, uh, was anomaly detection. And by anomaly detection, I, I mean looking for the outliers in different transactions. So I phrase now the problem in a way that it might become apparent where is the application. So for example, in the banks where you have, uh, where you process like millions of transactions on a weekly or maybe on even on a daily basis, uh, you need to look for the outliers in order to spot those players, those agents who actually might be the bad actors and there might be some kind of a fraud going on. And in order to do that, you start classifying your customers, you start to classify your users, and then looking at those classes and looking who's actually the outlier uh, from those classes. And that was the early application. It's really a deep subject of like going and trying to understand what's the anomaly, who's the outlier. It's really a broad and uh, deep subject, uh, but this is the common uh, the, the common use case of AI and machine learning, and it will be so uh, for the next years as well. Because as we progress with technology, with more computing power, more things will be possible. Also, if you deal with such a huge scale of uh, operations, uh, like millions of uh, transactions per day, then in the end you need a lot of computing power to, do, to, to really observe what's going on. Got so it. probably that's, the, that's, the, the, that's like the standard thing. Well, and on the other hand, what we have is, and that's probably more 
there's more overlap with what I'm doing currently as content generated at scale for bad purposes. So for example, you could generate fake news, you could uh, create Twitter bots with bad action uh, in mind, and you can do a plethora of stuff which in the end brings you some kind of political benefit. And those kind of systems are, well, there's an ongoing combat between trying to spot them and on the other hand, trying the, the, the hackers or like whatever you call those kind of groups of people which want to have the political influence, maybe not in, a, in, a, in the best way. Uh, there's an ongoing combat between the good guys and the bad guys of who's got the better technology, who can detect who and uh, whether you can produce this kind of, and whether you can influence uh, the public opinion by doing those kind of stuff. Interesting. And from what you have seen, who has the edge on that? Is it from well, the, the attacker? attacker yeah, I guess, I guess the attackers had the edge and the reason for, and they will always have just a minimal one. Uh, and the reason for that is it's easier to, with AI at least, uh, it's actually easier, easier to construct than to deconstruct, which is like, there's a whole, there's a whole thing within AI community called explainable AI with a goal to trying to understand why AI is taking certain decisions in certain algorithms. And it's really, it's really hard to understand sometimes because you have these convoluted functions within uh, those AI algorithms. And if you think from the cybersecurity perspective, then what the good guys are doing, they're trying to deconstruct what the bad guys constructed. And it's a much harder problem than actually constructing, constructing something. So it's actually, and it, it's always been that even without the AI, it's always been easier to actually create a virus than to detect it and defend against it. Absolutely. And it's a lot different than reverse engineering malware versus reverse engineering, you know, an AI generated attack. I yeah, see. exactly. Yeah. So there's like an additional layer of complexity to that. So I guess like the constructing malware was already difficult. And with AI on top of that, it's becoming even more difficult than it was before. Understood. So that, yeah. So, so that, that, that might be problematic in the long run. But on the other hand, I guess what might go wrong is we might, we might have these bad actors trying to, for example, flood the system with fake information. But people are also getting uh, more cautious about what they see on the internet. So I think like there's this natural mechanism within ourselves, which is getting better with time. Yeah. And some of the adversarial tech that's out there and sort of cutting edge and tech that I read about is just mind blowing. One article I read not long ago talked about OpenAI releasing what's called GPT-3. Have you heard about this? Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. And apparently it's a new language model trained with almost 200 billion parameters or something like that. And it's super fast. Uh, It's capable of doing programming, designing, and even holding conversations about politics or the economy. So what do you think about this tech and its capabilities? So this is a perfect example because GPT-3 in the end is just a language model, which means that it's learned to predict the next word, the next sentence. And all those marvelous applications are done by other people who built on top of that. So for example, to maybe give uh, your audience more, more context on GPT-3, what you can do is, for example, you can try, tra- translate 
plain English sentences into code really easily. So, for example, you can create just saying, for example, hey, create for me a website with a green button which would say sign up and which would take me to this and this website. And you get HTML code that you can use right away. And similar stuff with like mockups for applications or like different designs, maybe SQL code, stuff like that. So it's more like a super smart interface which does things for you. And then again, it's more like a knife in the sense that it's just a tool and you can use it how you want to use it. Uh, so by itself, GPT-3 is just a great tool, but the, the, the commercial applications depend on how you envision it to, to use it. Uh, and the same goes with using algorithms like GPT-3 for bad purposes. So for example, you could use GPT-3 a priori to generate spam content and then uh, send that to millions of people, basically. Uh, on the other hand, someone can use the same GPT-3 to actually detect spam content and defend against it. So this has like, you know, two, two sides. You can both, with, with this kind of knife, you can both uh, attack and defend yourself. A GPT-3 war. Yeah, exactly. But, but I'm a huge fan of GPT-3. Uh, some of the algorithms actually we use on ContentEyes are very related to GPT-3. Uh, I won't go into technical machine learning details, but, uh, but there's like a common streak. Uh, between those. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of what OpenAI did. Uh, and there are other players in the, uh, here, like, of course, Microsoft, Google, uh, doing similar stuff, NVIDIA as well. GPT-3 is really mind-boggling, but from the perspective of actual algorithms, it's nothing new in the sense that those are the same type of algorithms that were already part of GPT-2, uh, but the computing power uh, used is much larger, the data set is much larger as well to train those, those machine learning algorithms. And this is probably also a common street in other applications of AI. It's not only thinking about algorithms, but also who's got more computing power. Uh, so in the end, why I think uh, enterprises might have a better edge in the end in defending themselves is because uh, they can they probably have much more access to computing power than uh, those bad actors, especially from smaller organizations. That makes sense. And my next question was going to be asking you about the computing power. So I can't imagine this is something that if someone wanted to go online and download a program, it's not possible. Or I assume there's no SaaS based offering right now that provides that computing power. It seems like it would be an expensive venture to go through. Yeah, so for example, to, so if I were to do something like, I don't know, spamming millions of people, um, well, I, I could probably do that in my head. I know, I know how to do it, but it would, it would really be a, a, quite a venture to do in a sense of like uh, the computing costs and then doing everything in a, in a correct way. So it's not like, so, so if you think about this and think about like the malware from the 90s when you have those simple viruses which just went viral uh, with emails. It's a completely different layer of uh, sophistication that you have to add on top. So the hackers who can do those kind of stuff are no longer, I mean, they, they need to be much better educated and more, much more sophisticated with the, the whole technology stack in order to pull off things like that. But on the other hand, if they, if they really pull that off, uh, they can affect much larger group of people than before. So there's like a, there, there are pros to and cons to using AI to those kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so a priori, you can affect much more people, but it's much harder to pull it off. Exactly. Okay. And text-to-speech model is another. 
I was on YouTube the other day looking at vocal synthesis and you can actually hear it and you honestly would not know it's fake. So you have, I think I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger reading Hamlet. You know, if you didn't know it was a YouTube video, it could really be deceiving. Have you got to see or hear any of those type of voice train models? And, you know, how difficult is it to do that? Does it take the same amount of computing power as like a GPT-3? Yeah, to be honest, it's much less and uh, it's much better understood. So there's a model called Wave uh, done by DeepMind already, I think, like two or three years ago. And it's pretty much available on the web. So if you know what you're looking for, you can do it yourself. I mean, you, you still need computing power, but much less. I mean, for, for this, those kind of models, you probably won't spend uh, more than like $1,000 per month uh, to really uh, buy the necessary uh, infrastructure on the cloud. So it's not like uh, inaccessible. And I, I know already of like bad actors using those kind of technology. I've read about uh, uh, a fraudster impersonating a chief executive uh, officer voice and demanding a transfer of like a couple hundred uh, dollars. Basically, that was in 2019. I think he got caught in the end, but uh, I, I, I don't remember whether the transfer went through or not, but still, it already happened. So there are people who are already trying to use this kind of technology for bad purposes. I think of that as deep fake audio where detection would almost be impossible if you had enough audio to use. Um, and I guess that would be easier to obtain with a CEO or CISO versus gathering a video of them to produce a deep fake video. So yeah, definitely, definitely. You're right. I mean, and it's especially with public people like CEOs or like politicians, it's much easier to actually get, gather all the data from YouTube videos, from TV and so on. So those people are at risk when it comes to those kind of technologies. So on the topic of deepfake videos, would you briefly be able to talk us through what a deepfake video is and how it's generated? Sure. So basically a deepfake video is a video which was generated by AI to uh, show a person which might be, uh, might be alive, but actually never, never acted in those circumstances. So probably the most famous right now is uh, a deep fake of Obama, and you can Google that and go on YouTube to, to see the video. There's an Obama talking, uh, and it, it's, it's really, it, it's really uh, looking real, and it's already from, I guess, two years ago. And th this technology is really getting better with time. So the way it's generated, there are a couple of algorithms basically under the name of uh, GANs, Generated Adversarial Networks. They were, they were introduced like five years ago, and the idea is very simple. Uh, uh, at its core. The idea is that you have basically two AI algorithms. One of them is trying to generate something fake and the other one is telling whether it's fake or not. This first algorithm is trying to deceive the second one. And once you have that, the, the first uh, algorithm is pretty good at deceiving the other one, then you're probably, you're probably good to actually use it for, for your commercial applications or whatever it is. So this is how those kind of algorithms work. To be honest, like they're pretty well understood right now, and maybe they're not as good to use them in films yet or in movie productions, because once you know what you, what you, you can look for, then you always find those so-called artifacts. So those are like small things which, you can, which will tell you right away that this, this piece of content is generated. 
So for example, if you look at her, especially just above the ears or like small details in the eyes, then sometimes you can see, see differences between those generated, generated videos and the real ones. But this, this kind of techniques are getting better and it definitely will be a problem very soon. On the other hand, that might be also useful to, for example, restore old movies or use old actors from the old Hollywood to play in the new movies. So, for example, those are you, I think it's still an ongoing production, but I guess uh, James Dean is going to play in like a new movie, I think, next year, thanks to those kind of techniques. Oh, interesting. Do you see any benefits of deepfake videos, you know, outside of just being purely entertaining to watch? Um, I, I, I always yeah. think of the negative, but I'm, I'm yeah, trying to sure. think of a good use case. Yeah. So, so I mentioned this James Dean movie. I think that's pretty cool. So in general, and if you think about, I think that was the, what was the name of that movie? Um, with, there was this movie on Netflix with um, Al Pacino. Was that the, the Islander? Oh, the, yes. The, the, Irishman. I, the, the Irishman. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Irishman. So that was a deepfake, but not like an entire deepfake. Like they didn't deepfake the actors, but what they did is they make them look younger uh, through different AI techniques. Yes. Uh, so that's also deepfake, but it's not like, it's not, it's exactly the same techniques, but it's not, it's, it's being done for the purpose of like, you know, making the movie look better or in this case uh, making it more coherent because those actors were supposed to be younger at that period in a, in a movie so they, they make it like that so i guess the movie industry is like a, a big uh, a big place for where those kind of techniques can go and be really useful on the commercial level and on, on the other hand you also have the whole entertainment entertainment sector with like news anchors uh, or general youtubers doing that for the purpose of like presenting news. Uh, yeah. So de definitely that's, that's, a, that's a good thing, I would say, because you can enhance the human performance. You can make it easier. You can make in the, in, in the end, you make the, the, the movie or the presented news more polished. So for example, right now we were talking and you can edit everything afterwards, right? But if there would be a video, it would be much harder because uh, your audience could see that, for example, you make the cat here, mm -hmm. uh, here or the, the, the lips are not synced with what I'm saying or, or stuff like that. Gotcha. But yeah. thanks to those kind of techniques, you could make those cats anyway, which is, again, like this is a good thing and a bad thing because you could put words uh, that weren't spoken. But on the other hand, you can make those edits to make the whole show look better. Smoother. Yeah. But I tell you what, I wish I had an AI tool that would go do this editing for me. Because it is, uh, it's a lot of legwork. Oh yeah, definitely. So, so for example, the techniques, the same kind of techniques should allow you in the end to do that. But I think it's, we, we're not yet there, but definitely there should be something possible within this space of like editing videos, editing uh, podcasts automatically. I would love that. We, we, yeah. Like I, I would bet like two years maximum. There's like a SaaS product doing exactly that. Interesting. Yeah, there are many use cases I, I can think of from the cybersecurity angle. You know, you have the evolution of ransomware. So you can even use this tactic towards extortion or, you know, bringing down an organization as, as fast as you would with any other cyber attack. Why don't we see deep fake technology more in the attack landscape? Is it primarily the cost and complexity that goes into producing one and just not having enough material on hand? Well, that's a good question. To be honest, I don't know because um, 
well, I'm, I'm, I'm on, a, on a good side, basically. <laughs> but uh, no, that, that's a good question. I mean, you need to have more technological sophistication, definitely. Uh, so I guess there might be a problem in hiring the right people uh, for, for, for the bad actors, because especially people are interested in and cap capable of doing those kind of stuff with uh, AI and machine learning algorithms, they are super hard to hire even for Google, Facebook, Microsoft. So it must be even more, you know, like it must be even harder for uh, the bad actors to hire them. So I, I would see this as a primary reason because other than that, it's, the, the technology is there. There are plenty of open source technology uh, you, that you can use. Uh, computing power is there because you can use Microsoft uh, Azure or like Google Cloud or Amazon AWS uh, or whatever else you prefer. So that's not a problem. And the costs are really low right now. So I would primarily think it's because of like the sophistication you need in order to enter this market, uh, which might be a detriment to, to the bad actors which is a good thing. But the, the problem is once they get in and they be able to do that, I think they can do a lot of harm with those kind of techniques. Sure. And those bad actors, they're often looking for a quick drive-by. They want to get in and out. They target as many people as they can. So like you said, with the sophistication and maybe the lack of simplicity that is involved with creating these videos, it's just not available to them right now. But as the technology evolves, maybe you know, an off-the-shelf tool becomes available and maybe you'll start to see that more. What would you say to deepfake detection in terms of tooling? I know the detection has been in the field of research for several years now, um, but are you aware of anything right now and how far have we come with having a true accurate way of detecting? Yeah, that, that's a good question, but actually there's no tool I'm aware of that can say with like 100% certainty that something is generated or not. So it's super hard when it comes to text to say whether the text is generated or not. There are a couple of group of researchers which are doing that, uh, but that's definitely wide open problem. With images and videos, it's a little bit easier, uh, also with the voice, but I'm not aware of any tool that you can take off the shelf and start using, using for your organization. So that, that's the problematic part. I mean, this is the, the thing that you, you already mentioned with there's no SaaS offering for those kind of products. And the, the projects that I'm, or the products, projects that I'm thinking about right now is they're more tailor-made for particular use cases. And that, that's, there's nothing that you can just take off the shelf and start using right away. So from the point of view of like a secretary uh, in one of those organizations, there, there's no programmatic way to check whether that's a fake news or not. Uh, that person would have to double check uh, with her boss to actually, or check the recording to make sure it's really coming from, uh, from the real person in the end. Got it. So it comes down to just being aware uh, and following yeah. the process. Like with that, it's the same with like messages on Twitter. I'm not sure if you're aware, but I think like 60% of uh, all, the, all the traffic on Twitter is bots. Yes. So, so that's like a huge, like huge number like that. And to some extent, you, you can't really tell whether, apart from like the most obvious use cases, and most of the time you can't tell whether a given profile is a bot or not. So mm. rather, so I would think about this in a different way. In the end, it's, it's, it's maybe not such a bad thing that it's, it's a bot or not. Uh, 
what, what really counts is the purpose. Like if the purpose of a given, if a given, of a given bot, of a given algorithm, of a given agent, be that human or non-human is good, then it's fine. I mean, if it's, you know, like for, if it's for the betterment of the, of the uh, humanity, then, then it's great. What we want to do is we want to catch the bad actors, be they human or non-human. So that's like the principal problem here. Because if you just look at the fake news themselves, then fake news can be generated by AI, but they can be well written by people as well. And that's what's being done. I mean, you, you can have like th those kind of farms of trolls of people who are just hired to write defamatory articles, for example, or, or spread misinformation, go on social channels and spread those, those fake news even further. This can be done by humans as well. So the distinction between using AI here, in, here or not, or using people, is really a, not as important as the distinction between whether the purpose of a given thing is good or not. You can almost clone someone's personality if you have enough information and even looking at social media, right? And, and being able to just scrape posts. I'm sure there's AI engines out there that could clone a profile and be able to post things that the real person may be thinking of posting ahead of them. I mean, I'm sure it's getting to that level of intelligence. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, to be honest, I would like to have something like that for myself, uh, to, to, to not have to post on social media uh, every second day and just have uh, some kind of algorithm who would do that for me. Exactly. exactly. Uh, so actually, well, the funny story to share, I mean, I tried running a Twitter bot for myself, like uh, as my alter ego, uh, like a month ago, uh, but I, unfortunately it was banned by Twitter uh, because it reposted too much of uh, tech-related uh, content. Interesting. Okay. Cause so Twitter does have a uh, detection there for bots. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, both, like all, all the major platforms, both Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Google also with like the content you put on uh, YouTube, they have already also all those platforms have different measures in place to counteract those kind of things. But still, once you have the countermeasures, there are people who are trying to circumvent those. Like it's, it's, a, it's a game in the end of who's ahead and who's doing what. Is it looking at things like post frequency or terminology use, things like that? I'm sure there's a, a, a number of different criteria and algorithms it's, it's looking for to detect those bots. Yeah, exactly. Like you can look at uh, where's the location that a given person is writing from, like IP address or like also what's being written, how often and so on. But, but then you can go also deeper in like trying to analyze the, the sentiment behind those tweets, whether that's like spreading hate at the, at the massive mm. scale. So that's also possible. But to some extent, you have to like, you get to the point where you have to decide what you allow on your platform and what you don't allow, because bots basically are trying to behave like humans. You like, you're trying to like, uh, from the perspective of the bad actor, you want to have bots which they are behaving pretty much like humans, more or less, but they might spread the bad information. And the reason why, why that's possible is because you have those humans which are bad actors, meaning they spread hate online, they spread misinformation. Mm -hmm. So it's not about, again, it's, not, it's less about, with social media, it's less about catching whether that's a robot or not. It's more about catching what's the purpose behind writing this piece of content. And it doesn't matter whether that's human or some kind of algorithm that you use to write that. And the audience really should be aware that 
this technology exists and not really rely on Twitter because I'm sure there are some that get through or there's such a massive amount and the sheer volume of bots out there, they're not going to detect everything. So it's important for users of these platforms to understand that this type of technology does exist. Yeah, definitely. I mean, awareness here is the key. Yep, absolutely. So is there a solution out there to ease the fear of those that are anticipating the, the iRobot attack? If you're familiar with the movie iRobot, when the machines come to life yeah. and they take over, and, and not necessarily from a machine takeover standpoint, but from an Intel-driven attack. I would say that most consumers out there look at AI in a good way for you know the consumers of products. But for those that have that fear of a, of a takeover, what would you say to help ease that fear is a little it, bit? Uh, yeah. Is there something you can say? Well, it's a hard question because I don't think I can uh, in the sense that, well, the thing I can say is this, this situation is similar to, to the fears people had, I guess, in the times of the Cold War with, with atomic, atomic bombs. It's exactly the same situation. So... Like the, on the level of um, ordinary people, there's probably nothing to, to be scared of because, because those kind of technologies require much more sophistication and the computation costs are still considerably higher than just doing, like an, I don't know, ordinary scam fraud online. There, there's, no, there's no danger uh, in being a target of those. Unless uh, you're a public uh, you're a public figure, you're a CEO of the company or a politician, then there might be reasons for, to, to target you and those techniques can be used for that. So I wouldn't be scared uh, if I were, you know, like, if you're not a public, public figure, then there's nothing to be scared about, I guess, because there's no, there, there's no, no real benefit to doing that uh, versus something much simpler than, I don't know, like there are plenty of scams already online, I guess, with like stealing your ID, with, even without using uh, an AI that people should be aware of, or like giving your credit cards information in the wrong place. So those kinds, kind of things are much easier to pull off uh, from the perspective of a bad actor. I would be more scared about being a public figure well, in the coming years, because definitely you can use some kind of those kind of techniques to target these this people and maybe try to extract the you know, part of the wealth or have influence of them, on them. So high profile targets. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't be scared about also like iRobot scenario because in order to pull something like that off, you really would have to have great resources to do that. Uh, you, you really would have to basically be either a country or a terrorist, really established terrorist group to do something like that. And still, it wouldn't be probably the best way to uh, attain your goals. I mean, whatever your goals are, are as a bad actor. I, uh, but the problem is the, the cost of implementing AI are still much higher, especially on like, from a technological perspective and like the hires you have to do and people you have to attract to do that for you that it's not an easy option to do. And there are much easier options to attain the same goals. I think we really need to perfect the AI versus AI model in the future in terms of detection and defense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from the perspective of like large enterprises, banks, uh, insurance companies, that's like a 
I would definitely invest in uh, in AI in order to also detect anomalies or like do some something even more something harder here in order to counteract those uh, those potential attacks. Uh, so being part of the of the research community is really important here uh, because you can learn what people are working on and prepare for the next couple of years. Are there a lot of opportunities there for AI research? You, you mean like uh, for the researchers or like... Yeah, I guess for the community in general. So it, like I said, it's something that, that I'm interested in. And normally when a LinkedIn post comes by, you know, it grabs my attention. I think I sent you one not long ago that was, that was really uh, around AI security. So those type of things really grab my attention. And to my knowledge, there's not many courses in this space yet. So just looking for not only myself, but maybe others out there that are interested in, you know, the advancements of AI, what, what would you recommend? What would be your recommendation for a path of learning? Oh, that, yeah. I mean, that's a great question because I think like I'm, I'm not aware of any single course on cybersecurity, which, which is like, you know, available on Coursera, Udemy or any other platform. Because if you were to just jump into like machine learning and data science, there are like plenty of courses uh, from IBM, Google, or other big organizations to like top universities, Stanford, Stanford, Harvard, and so on. But the problem is they like very like general purpose, and I'm not aware of um, more cybersecurity-oriented courses that you can just pick up and learn about what you should exactly learn in order to uh, defend your organization, to be able to implement uh, security measures. So that's, that's a niche to be filled still. But it, maybe the reason for that is uh, if you look at uh, AI, well, AI is machine learning, so this, those, those learning algorithms, and it's still pretty new field It basically started to boom again in 2012, as I said before. So maybe the reason for the lack of content in this particular niche of like cybersecurity plus AI is because of the short history of uh, AI itself in this uh, fairy iteration, because there were like previous iterations of AI in the, in the 60s and 80s, but uh, those were different techniques that were being used and much less computing power, which was the reason that AI back then didn't really took off. Uh, so yeah, so yeah. As, like answering your questions, I can't really answer it well, uh, meaning that I, I don't have like a really great courses to recommend that you could go uh, on, for example, Coursera and uh, learn something there. Probably there, there are some things uh, at Stanford right now, and you might be able to access something online because I guess like, also I think uh, I would go to EDX platform. I'm, I'm not sure you, you know them. This is like a, it's either run by Harvard or, or one of those schools and they're doing courses online. And most of them are for free. So it's like super easy to pick something up. So I would, I would search for cybersecurity over there. Uh, you know, I see did what, see that. I did see that. Um, okay. And if I can find the link, what I'll do is I'll post that on the barcode website underneath yeah. the episode notes and point some listeners that way. You're right. I, I did come across that, and I believe there may be some AI ML type of courses there. Yeah, there, there's definitely something there, but th there's nothing like established, you know, like classical cybersecurity course you have to take. But definitely there should be something. I agree. I think that we need to start incorporating AI into the cybersecurity curriculum. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was just started to think about. Uh, all those viruses on steroids that if you take the viruses from the 90s but then power them by ai 
they can quickly become much more powerful and much harder to spot, extract, and like, I can think of different applications. But, the, but the, you know, like this is what we discussed. Like it's much harder to do that and do that at the massive scale right now than it was before. So maybe there's some time for for all the people to learn about potential potential dangers because before it actually happens. Because we, I think, like we're still in this spot with uh, AI that it's pretty early on in the game. I mean, the, the, this revolution is going for almost ten years, but it's still early on in the sense that. There, there's plenty of research going on. There's pl plenty of open roads. There's the computing power is changing a lot from one year to another. Uh, things like GPT-3 uh, are a great example of that, or like AlphaGo from DeepMind, or like plenty of other applications. And those are very recent. This like the last two years is basically that. So there might be, we're probably still not at, at, the, at the period. There's nothing uh, really, really dangerous going on right now, but in a couple of years, we should definitely be more cautious about how AI is interacting with uh, what we do online and how it can breach the security at organizations or at private level. As it evolves, I'd definitely like to keep in contact with you and, and always get your take because you are definitely on the front line of the cutting edge research within AI. Where can our barcode listeners go to find out more about what you're up to at Contentize or any other projects you may be involved with? And, you know, what is your social media footprint as well? Yeah, so, so basically the, the places I'm, I'm the most active is either LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn, or the other place is my blog on Medium. So I'm running, uh, if you Google my, my name, Przemek Hojecki on, uh, on Medium, then basically you should be able to find my blog. And I usually only write about technology-related uh, issues. Excellent reading. I, I believe that's where I came across some of your articles, and I'll get that link posted as well. So this is last call here at Barcode. So I have one final question for you that will definitely involve a large amount of processing power. If you opened a cybersecurity-themed bar, what would the name be, and what would your signature drink be called? Ah. Uh. Okay, that's a great question. So I'm opening a cybersecurity bar and a signature drink. Oh, wow, you, you took me off guard uh, here. So actually, I, I have it. <laughs> so I would call it, uh, the bar would be called uh, the Transformer Bar, like Transformers. Yeah, yeah. And the, the drink would be Megatron. There you go. And the reason for I, I can give you the reason for that because uh, the models be, like the, the the family of the model the machine learning models behind uh, GPT three are called transformers, and one of similar models is the model called Megatron from Nvidia. That's awesome. I really like that. I, I would go. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to have this like pop culture uh, thing and then some relation to AI as well. Now, when you walked into the bar, would AI be incorporated where your drink is already made for you? Oh, I love that. So actually, <laughs> actually, I, I was thinking about, you know, like having a place which would be run by AI. So you don't have no employees and just have, you know, you can like walk into an empty bar and the drink being served for you. That would be cool. Just as a side note, I was in Vegas for Black Hat a few years ago and I was walking by a bar and I think it was called uh, Robot Bar. It wasn't really AI, but it was, you know, you ordered your drink on an iPad and there was a robot behind the bar 
that would grab the drinks off of the ceiling, off of like a grid format. Yep. And basically make your drink for you and then send it out on a conveyor belt to your table. And there was no one else in the bar. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It was pretty that. crazy. You know, AI, facial recognition. Imagine just walking in somewhere. Oh, okay. You know, you, you come here on every Friday night and you order this nine out of 10 times. We're going to have it ready for you. I think yeah, that'd be exactly. Really cool. Exactly. On the other hand, it's giving up your privacy to some extent, right? You have to giving away data about you because something like that would be possible already in China. And I bet they have bars like that, like the massive scale where they can predict like, you know, your mood and what kind of drink you'd like to have on a given time. But the problem with that is you're giving away information. It's like the, the, the usual problem with social media mm -hmm. platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn is that that's great that they can suggest to you all those things. But at the same time, there's this risk that your, your data is out there. It's, it feels invasive. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, the, the bar idea is really great. I would, I would love to have something like that. We'll get there. Well, thank you for your time today and sharing your insight, explaining a lot of what AI is, what it does, some of the capabilities. And I'll be sure to post those links on the website so our listeners can keep in tune with what you're doing and the knowledge that you share. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. That was a really great conversation. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye. Barcode patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.